0: Countrywide on ABC Radio.
1: Support businesses are going to go to the wall, just like dairy farmers will.
2: We've seen the whole agricultural community come out.
1: Once people leave communities, they don't. They generally don't return. Countrywide.
3: Don't worry about me. Go and speak to your farmers. We're already losing
4: businesses. Get out there and speak to the your farmers, farmers
3: and for that
0: Countrywide, the politics of food and farming on ABC Radio.
5: And Jay McNaughton here with you today on Countrywide. I'm looking forward to spending the next half an hour with you. Coming up on the show today, Australia and India have signed an interim agreement for an economic trade cooperation pact that's been the subject of on-again, off-again negotiations for more than a decade. There are some definite gains in the deal for some agricultural products, but some big emissions too. As input costs like fertiliser and fuel continue to burden farmers, retailers are worried certain varieties may never be grown again. And we'll take you out into the field today to learn about chestnut and honey production.
0: From the Top End to Tassie, Countrywide on ABC Radio.
5: More Australian agricultural produce is set to flow to India, with the federal government finally signing a major free trade deal after nearly 10 years. Lentils, sheep meat, wool and lobsters, alongside coal and rare earth minerals, will have all trade tariffs cut, while there will be a slow reduction on tariffs of wine, avocados, berries, cherries, nuts, pears and some citrus. However, dairy, beef and chickpeas have all missed out. Here's the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, speaking about the deal.
0: In order to ensure that Australia continues to have a strong and prosperous future, that our economy is strong, because a strong economy means a stronger future, then we need to be shearing sheep, we need to be harvesting the pastures, we need to be mining the resources. And all of this is occurring in our regions. That is where the wealth of the nation resides. Today, I'm here to announce something incredibly important for Australia. Today, we open one of the biggest economic doors there is to open in the world today. We've been working on this for many years. The last three and a half years in particular, we are opening the biggest door of one of the biggest economies in the world uh, in in India. Now, the Indian economy is worth uh, billions and billions and billions all around the world. And there are many countries who want to do more business with India, but it's actually Australia that has been able to secure and the agreement um, that we've been able to reach, which which will be signed today by our trade ministers um, and witnessed by Prime Minister Modi and I later today, this agreement is an agreement that ensures that whether you're you're producing wool or whether you're um, producing crayfish or whether you're mining resources, critical minerals and rare earths, uh, whether you're growing berries or avocados or cherries or beans, sheep meat producing alumina. All of these are part of this important trade agreement that we've been able to reach with India. I particularly want to thank Dan Tehan, the Minister for Trade, who's done an extraordinary job working together with his counterpart, Mr. Goyal, Minister Goyal, to ensure that we could get to yes as part of this agreement. And what we're doing is we're unlocking the markets around the world for Australians so they can unlock the wealth that is in our regions and they can unlock the jobs.
1: The agreement that you're unveiling is more wide-ranging than many people expected, yeah. but the gains for most sectors are modest according to experts. Should we see it as an economic document or a strategic one?
0: I'd see it as both. I mean, it unlocks significant opportunities um, for Australia, and particularly here in Tasmania, um, whether it's in berries or whether it's in wool, um, ultimately whether it's in wine, um, crayfish, all of these. That's, they're all real benefits. And they they, they happen um, straight away. Um, But in addition to that, you rightly say that it sets out the roadmap to further and further economic cooperation into the future. When we were negotiating the RCEP deal uh, through ASEAN, India did not uh, come into that agreement. But it was very clear to me afterwards in my discussions uh, with Narendra, with Prime Minister Modi, that there is a real willingness to see Australia and India go forward within India with, a, with a trade relationship. Prime Minister,
1: the big issue with
6: agricultural commodities mm-hmm. at the moment isn't
1: selling them, it's actually getting them on the ship and getting them where they need to go. True. Is there anything in this agreement that's going to
0: address that? Well, no, but there's plenty in our economic plan to address that. Um, this agreement is about providing the market access into India. Um, but. Uh, the freight subsidies that come out of Tasmania uh, to get uh, things from here onto the mainland where they can be exported. Um, we've been supporting those for many, many years, as, as Tasmanians know. But in addition to that, uh, the world's supply chains and, and the, uh, the, the logistics chains are opening up again, and we've kept them going as a government. I mean, through the IFAM initiative, which kept planes in the air, supporting and uh, ensuring that we get freight out of the country during a time where the world was effectively closed, has been incredibly important.
5: Prime Minister Scott Morrison speaking there. And as you've just heard, Australian wine will gain better international access under the New Deal. And Australian Grape & Wine is also receiving a grant from the Australian government of over $1.8 million to expand export market opportunities into regions such as Southeast Asia. The trade deal has been hailed as a significant step in diversifying export markets and reducing Australia's economic dependence on China. Australian Grape & Wine CEO Tony Badaline says although there is a long road to recovering the losses of the China market, these steps are vital to addressing the country's oversupply of wine.
6: What the agreement will do is give us a good long-term opportunity for new entrants into the market and for premium Australian wine to go into that market. It's no short-term fix, obviously, to the China problems we've faced, but it's certainly a major step forward.
5: And you've also been given uh, a grant now of nearly $2 million to further diversify the wine market to areas such as Southeast Asia. How important do you think that is?
6: Yeah, look, it's a terrific grant that we've got. There's three pillars to it. One is that we're going to put a long-term commitment on the ground, of people on the ground in Japan and South Korea, so that we'll be able to uh, talk to consumers and make sure that our producers understand what the consumers want. So that's a critical part of it. The other areas within the grant will be to look at some of the market access barriers we face in markets like Scandinavia and Canada, so some of those existing markets, and particularly to look at our environmental credentials and how important they are And the third element will be to look at technical cooperation with India uh, and try and build that relationship. And that's become even more important now that we've had the announcement of the interim free trade agreement.
5: You've been suggesting for a few years now that Australia is less dependent on trading with China. Is this a step forward in that direction?
6: Yes, it is. So the China market was worth $1.2 billion before it essentially was closed a couple of years ago. We know we can't recover that overnight, but we need to diversify our markets. And the more work we do in growing markets like uh, South Korea and existing markets like Japan and certainly the UK and Scandinavia, it's vital for us. So they might not be as big in terms of uh, 1.2 billion, but when we add them all together, they'll make a substantial Knock in that, that overall deficit that we now face from China. So it's very important for us to diversify.
5: China was buying in a lot of high-quality, uh, ex- more expensive red wine. Is that the wine that's potentially going to go into India and these other markets with these, uh, with this grant and the new trade agreement?
6: Yeah, that's right. We're looking at a premiumisation strategy for a lot of our wine. Um, we certainly, 98% of our exports into China were premium red wine. Currently, we only export around 2.5 million litres into India. We used to, we exported about 120 million litres into China. So that shows the amount of difference in volumes. So it'll take time, but we expect that over the next you know, 5, 10, 20 years, we'll be able to build up that India market for the premium wine. So it's not a short-term fix, but it's a positive step in market diversification.
5: Have you spoken to many growers about either of these announcements? How are people feeling on the ground and in the farms?
6: Yeah, so growers are the first ones who suffer when you go into an oversupply situation, and that's pretty much where we've been since China was closed off. So great prices this year have halved uh, in many regions. So it's been particularly difficult for people in regions without a strong market uh, brand value and also particularly for growers who haven't got contracts. So uh, there's a real, I guess, hope for us that this will start to build growing, growing profitability in the medium term. It won't, won't have a dramatic impact in the short term, but we need a profitable grower sector. We need a profitable winemaker sector before we can be a really, really powerful industry.
5: Is there anything else that you're hoping that the government can deliver coming up to an election? We're obviously uh, getting people uh, left, right and centre asking the government for things. What, what else would you like the government to do to help the wine and grape sectors?
6: I mean, I think the government's been pretty responsive to the wine industry. They've understood the fact that we, we will suffer a few years of pain with China, with the loss of the China market. So the money they're spending in a market diversification and the fact that industry are developing these programs has been very powerful from a a mutual cooperation perspective. So we're really happy. We'd love to see more money spent on regional tourism. We believe that it's, it's a growing area. A lot of our wineries depend on that. So so we'd love to see a bigger investment in regional tourism uh, and just keep reinvesting back into um, building those export markets like we're doing now.
5: Australian Grape and Wine CEO, Tony Badaline. As the Australia-India Interim Free Trade Agreement doesn't assist grains as much as other sectors, Australian barley exporters are searching for beer-making countries to send their grain to two years on from China's trade ban. Meanwhile, a World Trade Organisation investigation into the legality of China's tariffs on Australian produce has progressed. Megan Hughes has this report. In 2020, China put an 80%
7: tariff on Australian barley, effectively ending the trade. The grain had been primarily used to make beer. Grain growers' trade policy manager Amelia Shaw said to sell the crop, it was then exported to animal feed markets, but now they're searching for the premium price again.
3: So now we're trying to find a market that will place the same value for that and it's not a feed grain market. So we're looking for, for markets that want to produce and use the good quality barley that we've grown that is suitable for beer.
7: And is that an easy thing to, to do to find those markets?
3: It takes time and it takes building relationships and the Chinese um, industry was very familiar about the quality that we had and how it was suitable for their processes in making beer. Finding other markets requires not only industry building that relationship but government more importantly, and removing those barriers that exist, and really selling the fact that you know Australian quality. Australian barley is a great quality and it's suitable for a variety of different interests.
7: Ms. Shaw says they're not limiting their search to any particular continent.
3: There are a number of opportunities that exist close to home and also more abroad. You know, even parts of Africa have been outlined as potential opportunities. You know, an example of where we also need to think creatively is we developed the CTPP, um very <laughs> word but that's an agreement with a number of countries and, and that was done some time ago and we as an industry said yeah, Mexico like that's a great ind- uh, country that we could potentially send barley beer to one day at the time it was a wasn't of interest and then last year we did see shipments of our malt barley to Mexico and that was an opportunity to At the time, that was not identified by the Australian industry, but because we thought proactively and we removed those barriers with government, we have found a home and that's a great news story for us. But we need to find more of those because we were sending a lot of malt barley to China.
7: For growers, losing access to China did create nervousness in the market, but animal feed prices have risen, closing that price gap. Nick Hillier grows barley in South Australia's southeast. He said it's been good for growers.
6: The people that tend to grow barley, grow it for the agronomic benefits, especially here in the southeast. We're quite close to the seed markets. The dairy industry is doing really well. And also, as I said before, the, this livestock game is good, so people are putting uh, a lot of money and uh, in grain into their stock.
7: One of the things with sending barley into the beer you can get that premium price but it sounds like given the current livestock market you know there hasn't been that big of a price difference between barley for beer and, and barley for feed.
6: No that's right look basically people used to try and grow malting that was uh, the big uh, crop to grow but nowadays with that feed price pushing the malting price off and there's not much of a difference. So. Most growers now go for maximum yield and if they do access the malting market, that's fine. But if not, uh, the feed market's not far behind.
7: While feed and malted barley prices are similar at the moment, the industry will continue its search for beer markets to shore up a future premium price. Meanwhile, Australia's dispute with China over these tariffs has progressed at the World Trade Organisation, as Ms Shaw explains.
3: We believe that... The first hearing has been occurred between Australia and China, and that's an opportunity for Australia to put forward its case and China to outline their stance as well.
5: I
7: saw a memo put out by the WTO panel saying that they're hoping that they'll have a final report on this by the end of the year. Are you expecting it to be wrapped up by the end of the year?
3: It is a long process, so there are milestones that will be reached this year, but we don't believe that. You know that we'll have a definite outcome by the end of this year. There are you know opportunities for the panel and both parties to go back and forth, but there are some significant milestones that can be reached by the end of this year.
7: So, what sort of milestones would they be?
3: The way the WTO process occurs is there's another hearing that happens, and that hopefully will happen in the next little while. And then, depending on the outcome, China or Australia can appeal that that position. If they do appeal, that can broaden the process. So we think that it'll be another couple of years before we really see the outcomes and hopefully, hopefully, um the tariffs removed on Australian barley.
5: Grain Grower's trade policy manager Amelia Shaw ending that report from Megan Hughes.
0: You're listening to countrywide, across Australia and around the world on ABC Radio.
5: Jane McNaughton here with you today. A Melbourne wholesaler says the price of fruit and vegetables across the country are at the highest he's ever seen and that they're only going to increase. Michael Piccolo deals with growers from all over the country and says because of rising production costs due to the pandemic, certain varieties may never be grown again.
1: They're up. I mean, it's across the board. It's, there's probably not one item that hasn't gone up at the moment. So it's, it's the culmination of a lot of things from what we're hearing is before it. You know, it was later, but now it's just, you know, obviously effects of the weather, the flooding. You know, when you speak to all the growers, all the, you know, the fertilising and all that, they're all up, packaging's up. So, yes. It's, it's just a um, per-
2: perfect storm at the moment.
1: It is, it is. And from what we're viewing, they're saying that it's going to continue for a very long time or they just basically can't produce.
2: Wow. It's going to keep going up. Is it, have you seen prices like this at all during the pandemic?
1: Look, we saw it with certain items. So we see certain items go up and down and it fluctuates. But what we're finding now is it's basically every item has gone up. And then, look, we, from what they're saying, it'll stabilise at a point, but the point will be at least 20 to 30% higher than what we really have ever paid before because the actual just cost and trading costs and everything that they need to function, basically they need to put their prices up.
2: 20 to 30% up than ever before.
1: Yes. Yeah. So I think the level of what we have always paid has been, let's just say, you know, if, you know, an eggplant box is $20. It's going to be always be sitting at, you know, between that sort of $25 to $28 mark, um, $26 mark. And basically they said if they can't get a certain price, it, it's not worth producing. You know, when we have good chats with the growers and our wholesalers, like a few of our wholesalers have come back from Queensland, and um, we had a really good chat with them this morning, and they're basically saying, you know, to produce rock melons, honey chews, and your watermelon, all your tropical lines, they're, they're up 30%. They're going to be up 30%.
2: So, do you think there are certain varieties that people might not grow anymore?
1: Well, we're finding that, like, you know, like a field egg plant, that's pretty much non existent. So, we find that, you know, they're basically, as the years go on, they're basically stopping to grow because basically to grow them is not really worth it for them, basically based on the cost and the wastage. And now we're finding that it's all mainly hydroponic. So a lot of that stuff, obviously, it's all grown indoors. And um, the cost of it is is more. It's more. So we're seeing sort of this transition period now happening. And I think initially when we first went into the pandemic, everyone thought, look, you know, this will all settle down and we'll go back to normal. But from what we're hearing from the growers, I don't think it's going to go back to normal.
2: So, so, the, so the pandemic has really changed the way that people operate?
1: It's Yeah, it's shifted everything. It's shifted everything. I think the first part of it all was the labour. So basically people couldn't get people working in the fields, uh, picking or doing any of that. So once they did start to get people, the cost of that was a lot more. So when we speak to growers, let's say a grape grower, and they say, look, we need... Well, they pack a grape box for $3. Let's just say every grape box someone packs, is $3 they get or, you know, $4. Now it's gone up to seven, $8. So that cost has gone up nearly double. And they've basically said, we need to get more for this product or it's not worth it. It's not worth to pick. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the, the, le- I think the levels now of um what people need to get, they've, they've been raised and, we all, I think us as wholesalers, because we've seen this you know, over the years, we'll go, okay, this, drop, this will drop and that will drop, but it's not really dropping. And from what they're saying, unless they can get a certain amount of money for the product, they're, they're not, it's not worth them picking it.
2: Do you think that will happen, that they will get the price that they want and that the consumer will pay that extra money?
1: Well, they're getting it now. I mean, you know, like the other day, because you know, we we're in wholesaling and I'll float through the supermarkets, and just to see exactly, you know, what's happening. And, I mean, a lot of the products are right up. I mean, we've seen capsicums at $12 a kilo. I've never seen capsicums at $12 a kilo. You know, they're saying even when we start the new season in Queensland, they're basically saying, well, if we can't get a set price on these products, a minimal set price, they're not producing. It's just just not worth it because once you've had in everything from the picking, the packing, you know, that's all gone up, packing, boxing fertilizing and then obviously petrol with transport they have to get more money
5: Melbourne fruit and vegetable wholesaler Michael Piccolo speaking there with Eden Henninen
0: From the paddock to the plate countrywide on ABC Radio
5: Enough doom and gloom and politics for today. Let's head out into the field. It's the time of year when the spiky chestnut-filled burrs start to drop off the trees in groves around Victoria's northeast and we get to roast them. The high rainfall region in Victoria produces 75% of Australia's chestnuts. Although small, the chestnut industry has big challenges, including trying to eradicate the fungal disease chestnut blight, which has decimated the US and European industries. Rural reporter Annie Brown went to Wondilagong to check out the chestnuts.
4: So that's what a burr looks like with nuts in it. It's
5: a big green, green spiky ball and then, yep. oh, and then it comes out.
4: And then yep. they're like almost polished. It's almost like polished timber.
8: Rowan Whelan and his family have been growing chestnuts in the lush hills of Wondilagong for 25 years. And right now it's harvest time.
4: No, it's like um, when you're a kid at Easter time finding Easter eggs. It's a bit like that. I find chestnuts a bit like that, picking them up off the ground, It's sort of yeah, a little bit.
8: And also comes around the time of Easter as well, <laughs> when they start to fall off the tree.
4: Well our kids have had every Easter up here, they've, um, yeah, they, they've, uh, we've always had the Easter eggs um, spread underneath a, a chestnut tree, so they've come out in the morning and found Easter eggs under a big old chestnut tree, so we've done that every year. Yeah.
8: Mr Whelan is one of hundreds of growers in North East Victoria, where 75% of Australia's chestnuts are produced annually. He has around 200 trees on his grove, some as old as 150. He's hoping his trees will produce up to five tonnes of chestnuts this year.
4: The total production of chestnuts has grown every year, as far as I'm aware, nearly, since we've been growing. And um, they, they all seem to get sold at markets. And I think the consumption's improving and the, the industry. So there's, there's less places in Australia, I think, that chestnuts grow well than you, you would find in certain other countries. And so I don't, you know, in terms of the industry growth, it's going to be limited to pockets of Australia that are, that are suitable for growing the trees.
8: What makes them grow so well here?
4: Well, it's, it, um, they need a fair rainfall, um, maybe 1,000 mil plus. And then they also need, you know, nice cold winters where they go dormant properly. And I think that's probably as limiting as anything in Australia because you get a lot of rainfall, obviously, in northern areas of Australia, but they don't, the, obviously being a deciduous tree, they they need that proper winter chill. Yeah. So elevation is good if they're a bit elevated. But yeah, yeah. I think going back years, you know, um, growers didn't have cool rooms as much, or smaller growers, and um, and probably weren't as set up to get them off the ground as quickly. Um, but I think in the last sort of twenty years, um, most growers now would have, you know, would would be getting their nuts off the ground really quickly storing them properly at the right temperatures and then now I think it's really a push to try to educate retailers, you know, like fruit and veggie shops where they display them, you know, they often, you'll see, sometimes you'll see chestnuts sitting out, not refrigerated, you know, whole boxes of chestnuts just sitting in an aisle and because someone at the local produce section has seen, oh, they're nuts, I'll just sit them out, you know, beside the nuts and it's how important it is to have them stored properly and kept cool. And so I think that's the real push now to have that happen, so that at least from the time they're in the shops, you, you know, you, you, they're kept in good condition. And then further it's then people buying them, understanding that they, they need to be kept cool. Yeah.
8: Although small, the Australian chestnut industry has big challenges. The top priority right now is trying to eradicate chestnut blight. Biosecurity Officer for Chestnuts Australia, Elka Jasper, is on a mission to survey
9: as many chestnut trees as possible in the state. The job um, was vast. It is vast. It's over 200,000 trees and we've done 20,000. So we surveyed um, large properties that had previous infections and uh, with blight and neighbours and we're um, working where blight is centred in the past And so that's really the Ovens Valley region. The chestnut farmer and the community should be really concerned about chestnut blight because it's a serious disease that um, overseas has decimated the native forests in America with the American chestnut. And it was the actual American chestnut tree was brought close to extinction. And there's actually um, major rehabilitation programs that's cost millions and millions to restore just the native habitat.
8: Is there risk of something like that happening here in Australia if it got out of control?
9: There's a very real risk in Australia. We don't have any natural um, biological controls. In Europe, there are some viruses that they use, but we don't have that are naturally found that don't occur in Australia. So we really
5: are looking at, relying on people to catch it before it spreads. Elka Jasper, Biosecurity Officer with Chestnuts Australia, speaking to Annie Brown. And staying out in the field now, floods and disease have wreaked havoc on bee populations critical for pollination of many crops, all the way from southern Queensland to Victoria. But this week, some sweet news for honey lovers. Because in far north Queensland, beekeepers are experiencing a bumper honey season thanks to prolific flowering of native eucalyptus trees. Cairns and Tableland-based beekeeper Graham Thornton says it's the best season he's seen in seven years. Reporter Tanya Murphy popped into the factory where he's been busy extracting one or two tonnes of honey per week.
10: Honey comes back in frames, frame like this. And then this is an uncapper. So this has got heated knives on it, which takes the cappings, the wax cappings off the side of the frame. Honey.
5: It's kind of like Willy Wonka's factory because there's tubes of honey flowing everywhere. <laughs> is this one of the funnest jobs ever?
10: Yeah, we, we always have people come in uh, to buy honey and on extraction days, and they just like the smell really radiates. And the different kinds of honey certainly have um, different fragrances as well.
9: How does this
5: season compare to previous years?
10: Yeah, the last um, seven years have been fairly ordinary. You know, we have had some patches of good honey along the way, but we haven't seen a honey flow like this really for the last seven years. And eucalypts can be very much like that. You know, they can flower every year, and then you see that um, some trees just, you know, don't produce a nectar. Um, But now what we're seeing is that they, they are. So it's great for us and great for the bees.
9: What's a typical day involve?
10: Oh, a typical day is getting up early, uh, packing up a truck, heading up to the tablelands, and pretty much working maybe two, 300 hives in a day and um, seeing how they're going, going onto farms where we have um, doing pollination, making sure that the bees are still healthy. So bees are very demanding when you've got a good honey flow. They need more room, otherwise they're going to swarm. So it's uh, a constant for us to to keep the bees going to remove the honey from them and everything we always say that uh, once you get stung by a bee it's uh, like a mind control drug and uh, you become a slave to the bees for the rest of your life so uh, that's um fairly accurate (laughs) so once you get into it uh, there's really uh, no turning back you can't just decide that you're going to go on a very lengthy holiday or something because the bees always need that attention
5: I bet you were craving some honey on toast after hearing that story from reporter Tanya Murphy. I sure do. That's all from me today on Countrywide. For more rural news, head online to abc.net.au forward slash rural.